we started the series last week, Why Christmas? And if you stop to think about it, the story of Christmas and the details surrounding the birth of Jesus that we find in the New Testament, I mean, think of it, like the birth, the shepherds, and, and angels, and a manger scene, and I'm, I'm that guy that likes to go to people's houses with their manger scene, put like a little Yoda in there, see if anybody notices, uh, you know, but you read these stories, and for, for some of you, or for sure some of the people you know, some of the people in your life, it's like, I know this is supposed to be inspirational, but if I'm, if I'm honest, it's kind of unbelievable, But what we said last week is what makes the events surrounding the birth of Jesus go from unbelievable to amazing is that the Christmas story did not begin with a young couple trying to figure out how they got pregnant. It actually begins with an old couple pretty sure they're never going to get pregnant. And yet God appears to this man that we introduced last week, Abraham, and is part and this is the part, especially if you're a skeptic or wrestling with this, that we just need to pause and try and map, wrap our mind around. And that's the incredible fact that 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, it was predicted, it was documented that God makes a promise all the way back in Genesis that through you, Abraham, every single, every single nation and tribe and person on the earth is going to be blessed through you. So God made this extraordinary promise which connects to our question, why Christmas? And it's because the world needed Christmas. And as it turns out, and what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes is that God needed as well. And let let me try to explain this. Uh, Parents, you've had this feeling, especially if your kids are grade school or older, you've had this feeling or this thought. And if you don't have kids, but you had at least one good parent, you need to know that they felt this. They thought this thought or feeling. I wish my kid understood how much I love them. I wish my kids understood how much I cared for them. In fact, just this past week for our second son's birthday, I sent him a card, but I actually sent him also a link. And the link took him to a private YouTube video of me with a personal message for his birthday. And one of the things that I looked into the camera and said to my son was something that I've actually said many times before. I listed several of the many qualities and traits about him that his mom and I love and admire about him uh, from childhood into manhood. And then I looked in the camera and I said, I wish you could see yourself through my eyes. That we so love and respect you as a man, as a son, as a friend, as a professional that you've become for the woman you love or the woman who loves you, for all of those things and more, all of what you are, we love you. And for those of us who are parents, especially as our kids get older, we think, I wish, I wish my kids would stop thinking that I just lay in bed at night trying to come up with ways to make their life miserable. I wish my kids could hear what I ask them to do and what I ask them to not do within the context of the fact that I have decades more of life experience than them, and I have nothing but their best interest in mind. Because if they really understood how I felt about them, they would trust me completely. Every parent has had that internal conversation, wishing that their child could and would realize how crazy in love with them that they are. And apparently... 
That is the thumbprint of God on us. Because God, your heavenly Father, felt the same way. But think about his challenge. It's challenging enough when I'm eyeball to eyeball with a pre-adolescent or an adolescent or an adult child, and I'm trying to get them to trust me. Imagine if you're God. What do you do if you're God the Spirit? What do you do if you're not tangible? You're seemingly unknowable. How does God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the non-physical creator of everything physical, how does the Spirit God communicate with you and communicate with me how he feels about us, his children, in a material world that has turned their back on God? And let's just be honest. One, someone could argue, the answer is simple. God, just show yourself. Just show yourself with no filter, don't hold back, just rip the curtain open, just show all of yourself. But there's a problem with that. And we're actually going to talk about that next week. So, but the, there's a problem with that. So God's strategy to communicate how much he loves this world and how much he loves you individually and collectively is Christmas. The Apostle Paul, who started off as a Christian hater, and if you've had moments where you just think, you know, I just really don't like Christians, Paul was your guy, okay? In fact, he actually arrested Christians. I think we've all had met some Christians we would like to have arrested based on how they act. But the Apostle Paul, he actually had that power. And then he has an encounter with the risen Jesus. He becomes a Jesus followers follower. He was well-educated. He was highly educated. He spoke multiple languages. He was incredibly smart. And then once he became a follower of Jesus, he began, he finally understood the Jewish scriptures like never before. And he realized that the whole of Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, was essentially a cocoon. It was God birthing something completely new in the world. And the Old Testament is basically the story of how God did it. So he has this aha moment as a Jesus follower. And in a letter that he writes to some Christians in Rome, in the province of Rome, he sets up what we're going to talk about today. He writes this, but when the set time had fully come, in other words, when God had things exactly the way that he wanted them, when enough history had gone by, when God knew that he could get the world's undivided attention because of an expanding empire, the empire of Rome, which was exporting a common language, a common culture, a common civilization, when finally there existed a seaport and a highway system that had nothing like it had ever existed before on this planet, when finally there was a peace in a region, in the regions and parts of the world, where there had never been peace, when there existed a failed temple system in Jerusalem, where money had become more important than morality, and corruption had become more important than compassion, where they believed God was important, but people were not all that important, that cleanliness was more important than compassion, when God finally had everything the way he wanted them. Paul says he took his next step. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, Meaning, when the time had finally come, when the story wouldn't slip through the cracks of history, when it could happen in such a way that it could be and it would be documented and declared all over the world, God sent his son. But here's the question we're going to wrestle with today because this is the Christmas question. And again, if you've sometimes just wrestled with trying to understand this, how does this fit together? This morning is for you because the question is why? Why did God have to send somebody? 
Why did God have to send a son? Why did God have to cram himself into a body? Why not just send us another messenger? But it gets even more complicated. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law. So now the question isn't just why God in a body, but why God in a baby body? He comes into this world as a baby under the law. Why? Like, why show up like all the rest of us as one of us? And the Apostle Paul tells us he had a very specific purpose. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem. To redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption into sonship, into daughtership. So, so why Christmas? Why did God send Jesus? It was to do what laws and regulations and prophets and judges could not do. It was to do what exile and punishment could not do. It was to accomplish what even sacred text could not accomplish. God was ready to do something personal, so God had to do something relational. Another message, a message or a messenger would not get it done because God's number one purpose was to move individual people into a personal relationship with him. So to get it done, God needed Christmas. And at Christmas, God took the first step to remove all the obstacles, all the barriers, all the boundaries, and finally establish and offer the way to unrestricted fellowship with him. It was going to be personal. So God had to come in person. Because think about it, how else would we know? How else would we know where we stood with God if God had not come to stand with us and to tell us? How would you know where you stood with God if God had not come to stand with you? And, and it's actually not that difficult to believe or understand if you think about it. Because let's just be honest, another message, another letter, another prophet, another miracle was never going to get it done. Never. And as I said, that we'll discuss more deeply next week, showing up in all of his glory would not get it done. And again, some would say, and I understand this, why the games? Why invisible? Like, just pull back the stupid curtain and let us see you for who you are in all of your supposed glory. And you need to know that Jesus and the New Testament writers do promise that the day will come. But once that day comes, where that happens... The opportunity for choosing freely will be over. And our individual destinies will be locked in because what we decided to do about Jesus in the season in which we could freely decide. If we say to God, just show us all of who you are, it sounds reasonable. But what we fail to consider is for the being who transcends space and time, who is able to create the entire universe to show up in all of his glory, you need to understand that would override our free will because it would be and it will be so utterly overwhelming. And here's something we all understand, that when it comes to a love relationship with anyone, a true love relationship can only happen when what? When somebody freely chooses us. Because forced love is no love at all, is it? And that is the thumbprint of God on our soul. 
And God wants a love relationship. So at just the right time, God sets up a demonstration. Because as we all understand, actions speak louder than words. It had to be a demonstration on planet Earth in history, one that could be documented in such a way that for hundreds and thousands of years we could and know, would know about it. Now think about this. Again, especially if you're a skeptic, you're wrestling, you're not a Christian, it just all seems like fairy tales. I just don't want you to miss the gravity of the history of the story of Christmas, that 4,000 years ago, God promised that he would do something through the line of Abraham, and it was documented. And 2,000 years later, Jesus is born, and it's documented. And 2,000 years later, we're talking about it. I mean, try to imagine all of the things that have happened in history over the last 2,000 years that you know nothing about or you've forgotten. Like you can't name the names, the dates, you can't give us any details. Many significant things have happened in history over the last 2,000 years that weren't even written down or recorded. They just went away. And yet, seriously, the birth of a nobody Jewish baby to an unmarried teenage girl in the armpit of a Ro the Roman Empire becomes a household name? So the Apostle Paul, he writes his complicated letter to the Christians who live in Rome. And the fact that there were hundreds and hundreds of Christians in Rome, because these people weren't stupid, it spoke to the fact that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. And here's what Paul says, but God, here's our word, God demonstrates. He showed us. He acted it out. He didn't just tell us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this statement is so much bigger than many of us realize. See, it dawned on Paul, while I was still in sin, when I was doing the absolute opposite of what God would want me to be doing, I was neck deep in sinning and resisting and rebelling. In fact, I personally, Paul could have said, I was personally trying to destroy the very work that God was trying to do. I was his literal enemy. And before I knew, before I even knew God had sent his son into the world, his son, the Christ, died for me to redeem me, to make a way for me to have peace with God. The apostle Paul, who made it his primary objective to rid the earth and to, of the church and to arrest Christians, to put them to death, he, it dawns on him even when God knew that I was going to be this one-man wrecking machine against Christians, arresting them, having them stoned to death, having them executed. And as I was in the state of being wrong, in the state of opposing him, rejecting him, while that was all still in my heart, Christ still died for me. Why? Why in the world would he do that? Because it was to put on a demonstration. A demonstration of how much he was and is for us, even when we were and are against him. But this brings us to another important question. Why? Why did anyone have to die? Why such a violent public demonstration? Why the blood, the gore, the crown of thorns? Why was he spit on and beaten? Why, why did he have to bleed to death publicly. Why couldn't Jesus just step up and pronounce everybody forgiven? Like right at the very beginning of his ministry, to just gather everybody up on a hill and just go, behold, I'm here to tell you, everyone is forgiven. 
God sent me to tell you all your sins are forgiven. You get eternal life. You get, why couldn't it be like Oprah back in the day? You get eternal life, and you get eternal life, and everyone gets a car. Why couldn't it just... So everyone's forgiven. Go spread the good news. Got to go. Why couldn't he have just done that? Well, for a couple of obvious reasons. The first is no, no one would have believed him. In fact, in the Gospels, every once in a while, Jesus would perform a miracle, and in the context of that miracle, he would say, and your sins are forgiven. And, and the religious leaders would freak out, not because he had healed somebody. That's what they should have freaked out about. They would freak out because he would say, your sins are forgiven. And they'd say to him what any of us would have said to him. Who do you think you are? Like, who, who do you think you are? That, that doesn't, to say that like, you can't forgive sins, that doesn't make any sense. You can forgive someone who's sinned against you, but to say, I, I have, I'm forgiving all the sins that you've committed against God and others? You're insane. See, if Jesus had simply said, I'm here to announce that everyone's sins are forgiven, no one would have taken him seriously. His words never would have gotten out of the first century. Because only a crazy man would be able to claim to be able to forgive people's sins against God and against other people. But more importantly, and this is the part I don't want you to miss, and I just I need a minute to explain. The reason Jesus had to come in a baby body, growing up among us as one of us, and to die such a public, violent, public death in front of so many people, and for it to be documented to the point that we're still talking about today, is because God is the author and the source of life. And God is the author and the source of your life. God is the author and the source, and don't miss this. When you and I, when you and I dishonor and reject the author and the source of life, you and I dishonor and reject God. So turning your back on the author and the source of life results in the forfeiture of what he gave you and gave me, life. In, in other words, you and I owe God our lives. So to disregard and dismiss God forfeits our right to what he gave us as the source, life. Now, many of you are familiar with what's called a parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And in the parable, for those who are familiar, what does the prodigal son do? He, he goes to his father. He says, essentially, Father, I'm really not that interested in you. I'm more interested in your stuff. In fact, I wish you were already dead so that I could have your stuff. In fact, let's just go ahead and pretend that you're dead and you give me my part of the inheritance, which the father incredibly does. And so the son loads up everything that he's got. He turns and he leaves his father to go live a life where he can do what he want, wants when he wants with whomever he wants. And in doing so, what has he done? He has turned his back on the source of his life. And in the end, he experiences total loss because he had walked away from the source. Loss to the point that the best that he can do is live in a pig pen, eating the pig's food. So now what can he do? You see, every single day, you and I 
really should just get up and say, God, thank you for life. Even though sometimes, like right now, life is stressful or it's tired, but, but in God, thank you for life. You are the source. So whatever you ask of me, the answer is yes. I mean, how in the world can I say no to the source of life who gave me life? How in the world can I resist the God of the universe that chose to give me life? How in the world can I resist the will of God who gave me the opportunity to live and to love and to be loved and who has given me direction as to how to live out this gift of life in such a way that it honors the giver and it honors to those around me who also have this given God life in them? See, you, you did not choose your birth and you probably won't choose the day that you leave this planet. And yet somehow in, in between these incredible bookends where we've been given life, our tendency is to ignore God, to disregard Him, to dismiss Him. Or we might believe He exists, but honestly, we're not that interested in what He really wants from us and for us. So we turn our backs and just, you know, I checked the God box. Now I got stuff to do. And we do our own thing. Or we even shake our fist at God. We wave him off and just go, thanks God, but no thanks. I'm not that interested. You, you might as well not exist. Because bottom line, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, the way I want. Or I'll just go, I'm just going to create a version of you, God, in my mind where I can say, I believe in God or I'm a spiritual person. And at the same time, I'm going to live life according to my truth, not yours. And as a result, we turn our backs on the one true God, the singular source of life. And as a result, we lose the greatest gift God ever gave us, the gift of life, which means that we owe a debt to the giver of life that we cannot pay. We owe him our lives. But God, as Paul points out, he points out, points to the greatness of God's unimaginable, unconditional love, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and this is us. While we were still sinners, Christ died in our place. Christ died for us. We deserve to give up the thing most valuable to us, life, because we were so disrespectful, disrespectful to the giver of life. And a few days after Jesus rose from the dead, the cowards who all abandoned Jesus in the moment of deepest need, in his darkest moment, who saw him executed, who went home and went into hiding and said, we were wrong. A few days later, they all, en masse, returned to the very place, Jerusalem, where Jesus had been arrested, dragged through the streets, dragged outside the city, and crucified. And they are in the company, they are in the presence of the very people, the very crowd who had Jesus arrested and crucified, and Peter and Andrew and James and John and all the rest. They're there, and they are eyeball to eyeball with the very people who had Jesus arrested. They look them in the eye and they say, you, you disowned the holy and the righteous one, talking about Jesus. And you ask that a murderer be released to you. When Jesus was on trial, Pilate offered to give Jesus back to you and to spare his life, but you were so corrupt, you chose a murderer. Someone who had taken life over the man who came to give life. And they looked right in the eyes of the men and women who had Jesus arrested and tortured and killed, and they say to them, you killed the author of life. Implication. 
God allowed you to kill the author of life. The author of life gave away his life because you can't take the life of the author of life. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this, witnesses of his death and his burial, and we are witnesses of the fact that three, three days later, he took his life back. We are witnesses that he ate fish and chips on the beach with us. We have touched him. We are witnesses that God sent his son into this world in a baby body to grow up like us, among us. Why? so that he could pay the debt that we owed but could never repay to the author and giver of life. We disregarded and abused the supplier of life. We deserve to lose the supply. Jesus' death demonstrated both the severity of our offense as well as the magnitude of his love for us. Because, and this is so important, don't miss this. We know this. You cannot demonstrate love without sacrifice. Love must be shown to be known. Words are cheap. We know this, right? Like, like I love you, I love you. Yeah, I hear your words. Show me. Love must be shown to be known. You cannot demonstrate love without sacrifice. And here's why this is so important. Because the question is, how does God, how does God demonstrate as a personal, at a personal level his love for you and his love for me? There is one way. Sacrifice. The only way for God to demonstrate his love for the world and for you as an individual was sacrifice. And you can't demonstrate great love without great sacrifice. In fact, you and I know this. The way you see how much someone loves you is what they're willing to sacrifice for you. God demonstrated his great love for you through a great and necessary sacrifice. And Paul writes, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. It might seem a little confusing. In other words, you might be, able to give your, you might be willing to give up your life for someone you love or for someone who could have a significant positive impact on society. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, enemies, opponents, Christ died for us. Why Christmas? Because God needed Christmas to demonstrate and document his extraordinary love for our rebel race. Otherwise, how else would we have ever known so when everyone had given up hope and when the Roman Empire had laid the groundwork for the message to be distributed and the temple system was utterly corrupt, when the set time had fully come, a Jewish carpenter discovers his young fiance is pregnant. And he's trying to decide, what do I do? What do I do with her? Do, do I shame her? Do I protect her? Do I lie? Do I marry her? Do I tell her mother? What do I do? And the angel of the Lord spoke to that bewildered Jewish carpenter and it says, Joseph, do not, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, the set time has fully come. She will give birth to a son and you are to give his, him the name Yeshua. Latin is Jesus. You're to give him name, the name Yeshua, which means God is deliverance. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. 
And all this took place to, to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes this prophet who had written this 700 years earlier. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him. And this takes us from big God, ethereal God, way out there to something so personal and intimate. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why Christmas? So that God could stage a demonstration because God knew we needed to see it, to believe it. We needed to know the story and that the story is about us. It was not enough to say it. He had to send his son to pay the price that we owed in such a way that we would never, ever again doubt God's love for us. Because here's what we need to remember. If somebody will die for you, they are for you. You never have to wonder. Why Christmas? Because we needed it. God needed it. It turned out someone else needed it as well. That's where we will pick up next week. But before we go, I can't end the message like this without giving you an opportunity to respond. Because for maybe someone here, someone listening, it finally clicked. Maybe you've heard or read this story a thousand times. You've gone to church hundreds of times. But suddenly for you, the dots finally connect. And John, John who knew Jesus intimately, he explained it the best. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in or trusts in, who embraces, who, who as Paul would later say, whoever would declare with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they shall not perish, but they'll be given eternal life, new life, ultimate life, life that they don't deserve. And the term trust in is not some magic word. It's just like, I can say that I'm trusting in this chair. I can say I'm trusting in this chair. Now I'm trusting in this chair. It's just simple. It's I'm putting my full weight of my life on this chair. It's putting your trust in more than just a logical, uh, an intellectual believing in. And so as you would expect, a God who loves us to do, he makes it simple. It's not complicated. To become a follower of Jesus is to simply say, God, I, be I believe. I believe that Jesus was your son. I believe that you sent him to die for me, I, for my sins. And I'm placing the entire weight of my life, my eternity, I'm placing all of my trust in the fact that his death on the cross paid for my sins. And according to the Scriptures, in that moment, you become irrevocably a child of God, adopted, part of a family. What happens is what Paul describes when he says you are in that moment adopted into the family of God because you have chosen to receive freely what God has offered freely. The very thing you could never manufacture or accomplish on your own. So if there's never been a time in your life where it truly clicked, as it has now, if you've never had a time to make that exchange with God, or maybe you did as a child, but everyone was doing it around you. Everyone was going forward. Everyone was getting baptized for whatever other reason, but now you're an adult or you're old enough to understand yourself. If today was the first time you understood that why Jesus had to die for you, I want you, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer with me, and just so you know, we need to understand a, a prayer doesn't make you a Christian. A prayer is just simply an expression an outward expression of something inward that has happened. 
the transferring of trust from our own goodness onto what God has done for us through Christ. So I'd love for everybody, even those watching online, if it's finally clicked for you and you want to accept this new relationship, this gift of new eternal life, I would like you to pray this prayer out loud with us. And when I say us, is because we're going to help you. What I mean is for all of you who at some point, whether it was not long ago or it was many years ago, but some, at some point you put your trust in Jesus, maybe you even prayed a prayer like this, I want to ask you also to pray it out loud, both as a reaffirmation of your own faith, especially as we come to the end of a crazy year and get ready for a new one, but also for you to come alongside anyone who might be doing something like this for the first time. So if you have in the past or would like for the first time to go all in with Jesus, I'd just like you to ask everyone to bow their heads. It's just an act of reverence. That's all it is. Close your eyes and just repeat this prayer out loud. Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus is your Son. I believe you sent Him to this earth to pay for my sin. I believe that when He died, He died for the sins of the world as well as for my sin. And in this moment, I'm placing all of my trust in His death as the full and final payment for my sin. Receive me into your family. And to my Savior's name I pray these things. Amen. Father, I, I pray for this entire group of people, and those listening online. God, I just pray that you would keep this fresh in front of us of what Christmas is really about. And not just this time of year, but throughout the year. And I pray, Father, that we would have foremost in our mind your love for us so that everything else we face in life will go through that filter. And for those that are still wrestling with what they believe and still so many questions, God, you're a compassionate God. You are the embodiment of compassion. And I pray, Father, that you would step in to every area of everyone's life who's listening to me where they're, they're struggling, they're wrestling with doubt or their faith feels so small right now. Like the Father in the New Testament, help me overcome my unbelief. God, I pray for all of us that you would help us to do that because we have a relentless enemy who all he seeks to do is steal, kill, and destroy. So Father, we know you're far stronger. So be strong in our lives. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I just want to say, whether you're here, you're listening, if this is the first time you prayed a prayer like that, or you've come to that point of belief, tell somebody. <laughs> tell me. Tell somebody before you leave, but tell someone. I'd love for you to tell me. Uh, if you're listening after the fact, message us. Uh, because you're, no one is meant to do faith alone. And because I want to have the chance to talk about your 
steps. Like one, one of the most amazing next steps is a beautiful act that Jesus himself did, and that's baptism. And for some of you, you your next step is baptism. We actually are having baptisms in January. We're having several. And uh, so please, again, let us, let us know.